The preached word this morning will come from Jonah chapter 1. The book of Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, so we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And and where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. As now most of you know, for the last um, couple of weeks, I have been on uh, writing leave, and I have had the opportunity of spending Many, many, many hours in the book of Jonah. I've been uh, attempting to write a book on Jonah. It has really just been an attempt over these last couple of weeks. But I pray that God has uh, been pleased to bless those attempts in in some way. I had hoped to um, complete at least the initial rough draft over my writing leave, but Last, the best laid plans of mice and men, as Shakespeare would remind us. Um, but indeed, I have spent much time in Jonah. And by God's grace, next week, we're going to begin a series of messages through First Thessalonians. But until then, I thought that I would share with you a little bit of the fruit that the Lord was pleased to gather in my heart and in my mind over these past couple of weeks as I have meditated once again on Jonah and just learned some marvelous and wonderful things. I know that we preached through Jonah not too long ago. It does seem like a long time ago because it took us so long to preach through Hosea. 
but it wasn't that long ago that Philip was preaching in uh, Jonah. Uh, but um, no, I was actually. And, um, and even as I have gone back again and looked at Jonah again and fresh for these past couple of weeks, I have seen some wonderful and marvelous things that the Lord has indeed laid upon my heart. I want to share with you this morning. You know, the Bible, uh, beloved, is, is just filled with these remarkable stories, these amazing and unforgettable stories. You think about them. Moses at the Red Sea. Daniel in the lion's den. Noah and the ark. David and Goliath. These are remarkable, unforgettable, amazing accounts that the Bible gives to us in, in the history of the world and for redemptive history in particular. But I would suggest to you this morning that there is none more remarkable and amazing than is the story of Jonah. Jonah is etched in our psyche like few other stories and biblical accounts are, even in a country where it seems like the, the biblical literacy is at an all-time low. Dare I say that you can walk down Washington, or Washington Road or Main Street in East Point and, and begin to poll people and ask them, are they familiar with Jonah? And dare I say that most people will still be familiar somewhat with the story that is Jonah in the Bible. And we've seen this in, in popular culture from Walt Disney to, to Veggie Tales, from Sunday School to School of Heart Knocks. Everywhere we read and go, there seems to be lessons that people are plucking from the story of Jonah that we believe are useful and worth learning in our lives. In fact, if you were to take an American Lit class, I'm sure that you would spend some time looking at Herman Melville's classic novel, Moby Dick. And if you don't, you should drop that American Lit class. You read... Herman Melville's classic Moby Dick, and you can see in his pages the influence that the Bible had upon his thinking and upon his writing. And in particular, you read of the story of Jonah as it is just marked out throughout the book. But you look at Moby Dick and you see this dramatic tale of this big fish. And when people look at Moby Dick and they see this classic tale of this big fish, immediately they are drawn to Jonah because they believe that Jonah is a classic tale also about a big fish. They see Jonah as just another dramatic story of a big fish. And yes, there is some analogies, beloved, between Moby Dick and Jonah, but to say that Jonah is about a big fish is to really miss the point altogether. Moby Dick may be about a big whale, 
But Jonah is the story of a big God. A big God. In fact, I would suggest to you that Jonah, in, in summary form, is the story of God. It is the story of God. The story of God is told throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But I would submit to you this morning that Jonah has, in short form, captured the very story of God. Rehearse this for us again. The story of God, the story of God is a grand story. Told by God in the words of angels and animals and human beings. We see this story captured once again in the life and the ministry of the prophet Jonah. And if it is a story of God, then like all the rest of the scripture, it is a story about the attributes of God. It is a story about the character of God. It is a story about grace and the mercy, the will and the word, the goodness of God. It's a story that reminds us again and again the God that we worship. And there is so much that could be said about this God in these pages. But I just want to give you two important clues. I believe the Lord pressed upon my heart again. I pray that he would press them upon yours. I had three or four or five. But I know some of you are trying to get home to barbecue. So I will share only two. Amen, Aunt? I will share only two. And that is, beloved, the God that we worship is a powerful God. Now, I know we think we know that. But I want to press it upon you again that our God is powerful. See this in the very first verse as Jonah opens up. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. There is power. There is divine power exercised in that first verse. For you see in that first verse the power that God has because God has authority. Authority. He has the authority to speak. Notice how he spoke to Jonah. Get up. Go. Call out. Get up. 
go call out. There is this inherent a power and authority that is understood to be God's alone. For he doesn't say to Jonah, Jonah, could you do me a favor? Jonah, I got a problem. Could you help me out? But no, beloved, God spoke as one who has the authority to speak. And therefore is to be obeyed. When God speaks, beloved, he is not hoping that you and I will agree with him. He doesn't speak in that manner, hoping that you and I will agree with him. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 says this, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does, he does as he pleases, and the powers, with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, and no one can hold back his hand and say to him, what are you doing? Authority, beloved, is limitless. And therefore, he is not obliged to give reason for his actions. He is not obliged to answer the often asked question, why? How many times do you and I have to answer that question? Even the little children. Mommy and daddy says, do something. Why? Why? Do we feel this sense, this, this obligation out of duty and love and grace to say and give them a reason? Technically, I'm not obliged to do that. You can ask God why all you want. God is not obliged to answer the question, why? Get up. Go. Call out. No questions, Jonah. Because when the word of the Lord comes to you and I, we are not to question why. The very first miracle that the Bible records for us is Jesus performing is him turning the water into wine at the marriage feast in Cana, John chapter 2. You remember the account when the, when the wine had run out and they went to Mary and Mary says, my son is here. Do whatever he says. Hello? Mary understood that when Jesus spoke, you were to do whatever he says. The command to go to Nineveh, beloved, does not come from another prophet. The command to go to Nineveh did not come from the high priest. The command to go to Nineveh 
did not come from the king of Israel. The command to go to Nineveh came from the Lord of lords. It came from the one who is the creator, the one who is above all, the one who is over all. It came from the one that on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, the voice from heaven came down and said, this is my beloved son, you listen to him. Because he has been granted all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And when he speaks, you and I had better listen. Because his power is seen in his authority. But not only seen in his authority, it is seen also in his ability. Because God has the power to back up his word. Don't miss it. God not only has his authority to speak, beloved, but he also has the power and the ability to back those words up. Who spoke to Jonah? The Bible says that the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord. The word of Yahweh. The word of Jehovah. The word of the one who has created all things. The word of the one who has who sustains all things. The one who reveals himself to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 1, as I am El Shaddai, God Almighty, the Almighty One. This is the one who spoke to him. The one who can do whatever he wants to do. He does whatever is feasible. He does whatever he desires to do. El Shaddai, the almighty God. The one who has power over the wind. The one who has power over the waves. The one who has power over the fish. The one who has power over men and women and kings and kingdoms. Who spoke to Jonah? El Shaddai spoke to Jonah. God Almighty. I found a new verse this week. It's in Job. Chapter 9. Verse 19. It says, Is it a contest of strength? God is the strong one. Is it a contest of strength? God is the strong one. Is it a battle of the wheels? God is the strong one. I know we like to wrestle with God. Like to arm wrestle with God. Hear the word of God this morning. Stop wrestling with God. Why? Is it a contest of strength? He's the strong one. I don't care what it is. Arm wrestling, judo, MMA, 
Boxing, I don't care what it is. You fight with God, you will lose. Now, don't get me wrong. I know we all do. We all do. Because like Jonah, we think we know best. And so when God's word comes to us and God clearly speaks his word to us, immediately we put on the boxing gloves. Immediately we begin to kick and scream because we don't like it and therefore we want to fight with God. I'm telling you this morning, if it is a contest of strength, God is a strong one. And I say to you, like Adrian said to Rocky, you can't win. You can't win. My children sometimes like to fight with me. They like to fight with me because they are convinced that daddy just doesn't know best. What they find out is that nine out of ten times, daddy does know best. Well, more like 8.5, but who's counting? About that percentage, daddy does know best. But, beloved, ten out of ten times, God knows best. That's why it's useless fighting with him. Ten out of ten. Beloved, what Jonah failed to understand and what we failed to understand is that God's power is not there to fight with us. That's why you stop fighting, because he comes as the almighty El Shaddai, not to box with you. His power is to be your strength. His power is to be your source. His power is to be your comfort. His power is to keep you safe. His power is for his glory, yes. But his power is also for your good. Consider what it says in Psalm 8. The psalmist says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is mankind? you are mindful of them and human beings that you care for them. What is it? I mean, think about it just for a moment. I know when things go wrong in our lives, when things go a little sideways, when things happen not according to how we want them to happen, we think the world and the universe has come to a halt. Because trouble rises. But here is the truth, beloved. You and I, compared to the vastness of this universe, are but one pebble of sand on the seashore of life. Why? 
Why should God care? And yet, beloved, he does. He does. He does. He who has set the stars in the heavens, he who expands the universe and measured that span in his hand, why would he be mindful of you? And yet, he cares. All that power and all that authority, he cares. And that's why, beloved, his power should be a comfort. And it is a comfort to those who trust in him. Sometimes, beloved, we think ourselves all-powerful. Really, you want God to be all-powerful. You need God to be all-powerful. You know why? Because your enemies are strong. Sin is strong. It snares. It traps. It entangles like a net. Those of us who have been caught up in it, it is like a net. And the more you struggle yourself to get out of it, it seems like the more entangled you become. Sin is strong, beloved. Jesus is stronger. That's why you want him to be all powerful. Someone has rightly said, there is more grace and mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. He's strong. And you want him strong. Because sin is strong. But you not only want him strong because sin is strong, beloved, you want him strong because Satan is strong. He is strong. The Bible calls him the prince of darkness, the father of lies, the great deceiver, the god of the air, the one who marches around like a roaming lion seeking whom he can devour. On earth he has no Equal. He is strong. But again, the Bible tells us that Jesus is stronger. For he said himself in Luke chapter 11, verse 22, but when the one stronger comes and attacks and overtakes him, takes away his armor and divides his spoil. When the stronger one comes into the house, Satan is strong. And in my own strength, I have no chance. Jesus is stronger. This is why you want 
God to be strong. You need God to be strong because sin is strong and Satan is strong, but the gospel is stronger still. That's what the Bible tells us. That is his gospel, is it not? That is the power of God. Here is the power of God. For the word of the cross, the Bible says, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Power is not in me. Power is not in my words. Power is not, on, is not even in my faith. The power is in the cross. The power is in Jesus. The power is in his blood. The power is in his spirit. That's why the Bible says that you have not been given the spirit of fear, but of what? Power. Why? Because the power is not in you. The power is in him. And when you fight against God, you lose power. Because God has it. And only in God is your power and strength realized. Don't be afraid of God's power. Jonah was afraid of it. He ran from it. Don't be afraid of God's power. Trust him. Rely on him. It is the source of your strength. It is the source of your salvation. Why should I fear, the songwriter says. The debt is paid. Only I believe. The God that we worship is a powerful God. But he's not just powerful. This God who is powerful is also personal. He is a personal God. This is wonderful to see. The power of God does not keep him from being a personal God who not only governs, but is actively involved in all the affairs and concerns of our lives. And you see that he is a personal God because he speaks. He speaks, beloved. The nature of any relationship is communication. And if God is in relationship with his people, then he speaks to his people. He speaks to his creation. He spoke to Jonah. But he didn't only speak to Jonah. The Bible says he spoke to the fish. Not only spoke to the fish, he spoke to the wind. Spoke to the waves. Our God speaks. The book of Jonah, beloved, is this blessed interaction between God 
Jonah where God speaks. Jonah hears but refuses to obey. You see this interaction going on time and time again. God speaks. Jonah hears. He refuses to obey. He refuses to obey. Disobedience doesn't mean that God didn't speak. I know we like to think it does. Well, I don't know what God said. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Disobedience does not mean God didn't speak. Disobedience doesn't mean that you and I don't hear. Because we hear. We hear what we want to hear. Disobedience doesn't mean that God didn't say. Disobedience doesn't mean that I didn't hear. Disobedience is me hearing and hardening my heart. Disobedience is me listening and hardening my heart. Jonah's problem was not that he didn't hear God. It was that he thought he knew better than God. We always do. We always do. And yet this is the nature of God being in relationship with his people. God speaks. He speaks. He begins Jonah by speaking. Jonah begins by God speaking. Jonah ends with God speaking. God opens the conversation with his words. He closes the conversation with his words. This is a blessed thing, beloved. That the God of heaven and earth would speak to you and speak to me. And what a tragedy it is when we hear and don't obey. When we think we have to have the last word, because that's what most of us do. We think we have to have the last word. Is that you? And conversation is shame on you and shame on me if it is. Because shame on you and shame on me when we believe that every conversation, we got to have the last word. You don't have the last word in conversations with God. God has the first word, and if he's gracious, he allows you to talk, but then he has the last word. So he begins the conversation with Jonah. He allows Jonah to talk throughout the time together, but then he ends the conversation with Jonah. Because God's word is Alpha and Omega. God's word is beginning and end. He begins the Bible with his word, let there be. He ends the Bible with his word, surely I'm coming again. You can do all the talking you want to in the middle. God opens the conversation. God closes the conversation. So it was. Speaks. And his word, beloved, is established. It is not validated by your or my opinion or feelings at any given time. 
as Isaiah reminded us in Isaiah 40. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God is established forever. Beloved, I know it's, it's difficult for some of us to get our minds around and really begin to understand and really begin to want it to be true. But listen, God speaks to his people. I was telling somebody this week that I would not dare to seek to be a pastor of a church and to any form of fashion lead God's people if God didn't speak to me. Forget it! God has always spoken to his people. And he would never leave his people hanging out to dry. Because the nature of personal relationship is that there is speaking. Not only does God speak, Remember, he's a personal God. And therefore, to your amazement and to my amazement, not only does he speak, but he listens. He listens. He listens. He listens. He listened to those men on that ship as they cried out to him, God, do not allow us to perish. He listened to the people of Nineveh as they cried out in repentance to him. He even listened to Jonah as Jonah complained about God's grace to the Ninevites. He listens. He listens. It's an amazing truth, beloved. God is not obliged to listen. No one can say to him, God, you owe me a listening. He is not obliged to listen. He is not obliged to hear, and yet he listened. He listened to Jonah's complaints. He listened to Jeremiah's lament. He listened to Paul's pride. He listened to the apostles' pleas. He listens. You listens to me. He listens when no one else will listen. He listens when no one else can listen. He listens when all others stop listening. He listens to what you say, and then he listens to what you really mean. He listens. But the psalmist says, I sought the Lord and he heard me, delivered me from all my fears. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all our fears. The, my mother's church and the church that I grew up in, the deacons would pray every Sunday morning. And they would pray long and they would pray hard. 
And you would ask yourself, why are they praying so long? Why are they praying so hard? But then you would hear the answer if you would just listen. They would say without fail every Sunday, I love the Lord. And he heard my cry and he pitied my every groan. And as long as I live and trouble rise, I will hasten to the throne. Know why they prayed so hard. And you know why they prayed so long. It's because they believed that God was listening. And if you and I really believed that he was listening, you pray longer. You pray harder. God listens, beloved. He is in personal relationship with you, and the nature of personal relationship is not only speaking, but the nature of personal relationship listening. And he listens. He who listens is also he who saves. That's what he's listening for. That's what he's listening for. For the nature of personal relationship with God is that God saves. No one, beloved, is in personal relationship with God apart from salvation. It's the nature of relationship with him. To enter into a relationship with God, you have to hear God saying, you are a sinner in need of salvation. To be in a personal relationship with God, God has to hear you say, Forgive me, for I am a sinner. To be in personal relationship with God, then, is to acknowledge that salvation is of the Lord. That's what Jonah learned. The belly of that whale, that fish, or whatever it was. Salvation belonged to God. If I am going to be personal relationship with him, I have to acknowledge my need of being saved. Therefore, beloved, salvation is not impersonal. Salvation is not an impersonal thing. God takes it very personal. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to Nineveh to say to the Ninevites that salvation is coming. But Jonah went. And he went reluctantly, beloved. But do you know that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to tell us that salvation has come and he didn't come reluctantly? He came with joy. He came willingly. And he 
God comes to save us, beloved. He comes personally. He doesn't send money to bail you out. He himself comes. Jonah was sent to the Ninevites to preach salvation from God. This was just a precursor to God himself coming to preach salvation alone in him. There is this personal quality and aspect to salvation that you and I must get. Jesus died for the church and yet he knows every member by name. Why? Because with him it's personal. Jesus gave his life for the flock. And yet, he knows every sheep's voice. Why? Because for him, it's personal. You do understand that the Bible says that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And yet, every name is written on the palms of his hands. Why? Because, beloved, with him it is personal. with God, beloved. Every name is written in the book of life. Every name is written in the palms of his hands. When God saved you, beloved, he didn't just throw you into a bag of marbles. But he saved you by name. He knows every marble, the uniqueness of his colors, the prints on his fingers, the strands in his hair, the number of breaths in his lungs, the number of beats in every heart. Because for him, it's personal. Tell your story of salvation. Yes, it is your story. But long before it was your story, it was the story of God. For your redemption was accomplished long before you did. And therefore, is the story of God, our creator, coming down to personally save sinners. It is the story of God, our Savior, in Jesus Christ, dying on the 
cross, being buried for three days, and being raised again from the dead. It is the story of all those who place their faith and trust in him are saved and will be saved forever. It is a story of God. It is a story of victory. Victory over sin. Victory over Satan. And victory over your own sinful self. It's a story of God. It's always been the story of God. It's always been the story of God. That's why I Love the song. It says, I heard an old, old story. Our Savior came from glory. I gave his life on Calvary. To save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning. Of his precious blood atoning. And I repented of my sins. And I won that victory. And that victory is his power. That victory is him accomplishing my salvation personally. That victory is the story of God himself. It's not just a story of Jonah. That's your story. That's my story. That's our story. That's the story we sing about. That's a story we meditate on. That's a story that is our hope. All the game. 